Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Hello! Welcome to the thick of it and the second episode of Pursued by Bear, the Exim Theatre Podcast. We too are in full election mode, but instead of carefully choreographed but extremely pointless election debates, I'm pleased to say that today we are joined by people that actually have something to say. In the first corner, we have from the International Humanist and Ethical Union, Bob Churchill. Hello. Facing us, my favourite political blogger, Girl Ignited, the journalist Jesse Thompson. We are also joined by critic Tim Banner with his usual debonair charm. Hello. <laughs> and I'm not staying on the sidelines. My name is Anna Greta Martin. Today we will be discussing three plays Chris Good's Stand on Hoerenfurt's Fight Night and Lampedusa by Anders Lustgarten. And we'll also have two exciting features for you, but more on that later. out of stand here at BAC, um, who are very kindly hosting us today. But let's take some time to let it all sink in and talk about Lampedusa first. In the light of recent events and with over uh, 1,500 migrants drowning in the Mediterranean this year alone, Anders Lustgarten's play Lampedusa uh, has become uncomfortably topical. Bob, can you tell us briefly what the piece is about? Yeah, the piece is about migrants coming across the Mediterranean in one of its two stories and the threat to their their life and security and well-being that obviously, as we've learned in the last week, can meet with huge fatalities and, and losses. So there's one story about that, in particular with Ferdy Roberts acting as the guy whose job it is to pull the corpses out of the Mediterranean. So really getting right down to the kind of nub of the issue. And uh, the other story set in the UK is a young immigrant paying her way through college with a job for a debt collection agency that she really doesn't enjoy her kind of dealing with the kind of moral dilemma of that, I suppose. Jesse, what do you think about the relationship between political activism and theatre and how successful do you think Lampedusa is as a political play? Obviously we always have issues with the fact that we don't feel that the audience is very representative and we're kind of preaching to the converted but one of the things that came out of watching Lampedusa the day that I went was that Anders Lasgarten said don't feel guilt about it because it's kind of a waste of energy. I personally think it does that very well because it leaves you with quite a positive message. So rather than kind of left-wing people beating themselves up all doom and gloom, you kind of feel uplifted. It's about how institutional cruelty is actually overridden sometimes by human kindness and connections. And I, I think that's really inspiring. I definitely felt some of that. I think that one of the really standout moments for me was actually in what kind of feels like the B story of the, the, the young woman in the UK because it's not such a big deal and her life in, for her is a big deal but she's not dealing with the same kind of level of tragedy but the moment when a friend of hers 
sort of she sees through her eyes the state that her mother's flat is in, and there's a line about the mildewed curtains and so on. Uh, that that really sort of stood out and hit that kind of social justice spot. Weirdly, I think that I, I felt the other way to some critics that have responded to the play that actually that was quite compelling. Certainly, the story of this guy fishing corpses out of the sea it's bad, but it's almost it's almost so alien. It was quite difficult to um, to get hooks into and and kind of given that it's so compelling as a story given that it's such a hot issue I didn't feel quite as moved by it as I should have done I didn't feel particularly moved by it either the playwright chose to tell a story about the deaths of thousands of migrants through two characters who aren't migrants to people who admittedly have troubles of their own but you know they're sort of relating the hardships of their lives while seeing significantly more horrific hardships of other people's lives. Did you feel pity? Did you feel, I think this is something that makes me want to do something about it? It it evokes anger, but anger that it was a kind of wasted opportunity because the thing that came across most strongly for me was Anders Lusgarten's voice. Peppering every single line with an unnecessary bonmo or simile or, you know, there was a line about something looking as dusky as peaches and apricots or something. Both of the characters spoke like the playwright. I don't necessarily agree. I think that what he does really well is he looks at two people who, because of the world that we live in and the system that we're all quite restricted by, he looks at this Denise who has to be a payday loan collector, even though she clearly has really strong political values, and a guy who has to fish out dead bodies, you know, and he's absolutely traumatised by it. And I think it kind of... Those, they are important because they are having to do something that compromises their humanity. kind of felt like really folky, almost like a ghost story or like sepia photograph. I really like the direction. I like the way that the actors were mostly telling it from within the audience, so sitting as part of the audience, because it does add to the sense of not necessarily complicity, but universality maybe of Do you experience. not think it was too, the, the language was too flowery, too beautiful to actually let in the reality of what was happening. So I think the horrendous extent of what's happening, especially in the media at the moment, it's just discussed as this. It's not as if it's a real thing. It's just a hypothetical... Often more didactic theatre will get criticised as, as, oh, it seems to be too lefty, there's too much of the author's voice in it. I don't mind a bit of that. I think that's kind of the purpose of some political theatre. And I, I also enjoyed that positivity you were talking about. It's not about just saying this is something we should all feel guilty about, it's terrible, it's all gone wrong. Actually, it's saying that your view of things can change and flip around and, and move. But I felt that it kept being undermined by weird little things. I mean, one one real issue for me, the character of the migrant that befriends Stefano felt like a real archetype is a polite way of putting it, the sort of mysterious, African, gentle, calm, friendly... So uh, tokenistic. The, yeah. there, was a, there, was some, there was an element of tokenism about it that really undermined the whole point that it was about trying to, trying to find the humanity in mm-hmm. other people, yeah. I thought there was something a bit discomforting as well about giving him this happy ending. I thought but that, that is that is the point. These because people have had hardship and they have really suffered, they can kind of have an optimism and a hope. I think when people have lived in a very sheltered way, they don't necessarily feel grateful for stuff that normal people don't just take for granted. If you, all of that happens to you and you can still have these human connections and not just resent other people, that is, that is a really positive thing to take away. Yeah, I don't think it really solves anything.
something. I completely agree with you. This play will not solve any problems with migrants, but I think that the, the takeaway thing for me is that just it's about not being suspicious of other people and just talking to people and thinking like that's a, that's a person that. But it doesn't quite commit to that because it says be suspicious of everyone who's involved in government. Yeah, but why would you not be suspicious of them? I genuinely don't think people go into government to try and hurt people. And they may end up doing that and they may be, you know, blind and they may have ideologies that conflict with your own, but I genuinely don't think people go in with bad intentions. People don't go into government to hurt people, but they're so far removed from humanity. They come from, I mean, you have to admit, they come from a very sheltered background. And Some of them do, but again, that doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them people we should be suspicious of. There's governments who can just kill loads of people and they don't have to get their hands dirty, and it's so easy to do that now. That is the point of this. He's talking about a rescue programme, Mare Nostrum, that has been cut. The UK led the way with that. You can't help but feel like cutting that is saying will encourage migrants to drown. So I'm not saying that you go into government to hurt people, but how can you say, yeah, we're turning on the cheek to lots of dead people? I don't think you should, but what I'm saying is that I don't think dissatisfaction with that should be borne out by automatic suspicion of anyone in government. I think it shouldn't be automatic, but if if one thing this play did, it certainly showed a crystal clear example of something very bad that is happening as a direct result of actions and the way that we've responded to them and then withdrawn our response to them. Mm. And so I think that, you know, especially after last Sunday, 700 more dead at a stroke. And if the current coalition government that was a linchpin of the decision to scale back Mare Nostrum doesn't feel that as a prick on its conscience, then it has no conscience. I mean, it absolutely has to be that there are reasons to be suspicious of a government that does that. As long as we look after the rich and powerful, we'll all be okay. That was Lampedusa by Anders Lustgarten at the Soho Theatre. We will come back to our discussion later. But now, meet Hannah Price, Artistic Director of Theatre Uncut a company that provides new pieces of writing for free for anyone to use. I spoke to her about why she decided to set up Theatre Uncut. Theatre Uncut literally started the day after the coalition government announced the cuts in 2010, so October 2010, because I was furious about uh, the cuts and who I thought they would be affecting most, which seems to be people who are most vulnerable. So yeah, our um, work over the last four years has really changed. When we first started Theatre Uncut, it was just a project to talk about the cuts, um, and it snowballed, which was completely shocking. One minute we were in my kitchen discussing whether or not this was possible and the next minute, you know, Nick Heitner turned up. I was then joined by Emma Callender, my co-artistic director, and um, our general manager, Corin, who, both of whom are amazing women. Zara gives the vending machine a thump, but it's definitely not going to let her have her twix. She feels close to tears, and then she catches herself. I've lost a pound, she thinks. I'm £38,000 in debt and I'm crying over a pound. I didn't want a Twix anyway, she thinks. She goes to the toilet. She spends a lot of time in the toilet. People must think there's something wrong with her. There isn't, actually. The only thing that's wrong with her is she doesn't want to work here. We were very lucky 
very early on to be supported by some really amazing writers. Um, our first two writers to say that they wanted to work with us on the project were Mark Ravenhill and David Gregg. And they had already had a sort of uh, conversation about performing some pieces simultaneously in several places. Our idea was to have this kind of egalitarian model where anybody could download the plays and perform them anywhere. I think it, when you first approach uh, a writer, more particularly their agent, and tell them what Theatre Uncut is, there's a moment where they kind of think, well, well what is this about? But we've never had any, any problems getting writers interested in what we do. And I think it's extraordinary that so many writers have said to us, take my work and give it out for free. We've had people contact us from saying they've performed the plays on a bus going back and forth over the Mexican border, for example, or on the streets in, um, in, in protests in Spain or and in places all over the world. The one, I think, for me that's been the most extraordinary was working with Dot Teatro, which is in Istanbul. And uh, we went over there and worked with four writers from Turkey and two British writers to look at the effects of what happened in Taksim Square and uh, the protests that have been happening in Turkey since then and um, brought them over last year to Edinburgh. Um, it just has been one of those collaborations that's just made you look differently at the work you make and who you can work with. At first it was, I've got a degree in creative writing, brackets, playwriting, close brackets. I'm going to be a playwright, obviously. I'll be an emerging writer. And then it was... It would be nice to get a job that was something to do with theatre. Box office, maybe. Just casual, in my spare time between writing. And then it was... It would be nice to get a decently paid job in the creative industries. And now she's been working for two and a half years for a shipping logistics company. It's not exactly creative, but they have beanbag chairs in the office and table football. And you can wear what you want to work, within reason. Well, when you first approached me about this podcast you mentioned the relationship between theatre and activism and I, so I sort of started thinking about what what Theatre Uncut does that is that inspires questions like that and I think it's because activism um, is about making change and about having a reach reaching enough people to make a change and Theatre Uncut has kind of that model at its heart in insofar as we want to make people think about stuff and we want to, that to make a positive change. Um, and we want to do it by reaching as many people as we can. So for us, that's definitely what defines the theatre company and our relationship to activism. The idea was that she'd go home every night and work on her play. And she does, most nights, to be fair. Only the characters in her play don't seem to know what they want to say to each other anymore. They're just chatting. That's all they do. They're just chatting shit. I mean, so the other thing that we are really proud of with Theatre Uncut is that uh, we have a post-show discussion um, after every show, as, as far as is possible, by venue. It's really, really important to us that the audience are able to talk back about what we've just shown them. Um, I think if you saw the last tour, it was quite full-on, so um, quite in your face, and some people really were raring to tell us some stuff. So we always invite some guests and get the audience to speak back to us. We invite post-show discussion guests that vary from uh, people who are very actively engaged in political activism um, to political scientists or um, sociologists or people who really disagree with us. We try as much as we can to bring people in who don't necessarily speak on the same side as we do to try and bring scope and talk about things that we are trying to explore. And I think that's a really important thing to do 
in insofar as it allows us and um, other theatre makers and anybody who sees our work really to kind of try to see where it sits in a sort of larger political spectrum because it's quite easy and it, we often get people say I mean the, the most common question in a post-show discussion is um, are you not just a bunch of middle class people making middle class thoughts for middle class people so firstly I think the use of middle class in that context is very limiting um, around 70% of the British public self identifies middle class so the scope of people involved in that is massive. So if we are speaking to middle-class people in that context, then we're probably doing quite a good job. Sometimes it's nice to go somewhere and hear something that isn't in the in the public domain as much as you would think said on stage. I mean, most of our commentators in the public eye, most of our big newspapers, most of our, the people that have the biggest scope of audience are, are not necessarily from... A left-wing perspective so that's one reason why that's an okay thing to be doing and secondly I think that it, it's it's always going to be difficult in a in a medium where you have to pay for a ticket that to attract people who maybe can't afford that ticket um, and ideally we would love to do work where that can't happen that you don't have to pay for a ticket but in so far as we put everything out there to be downloaded for free, um, we hope we hope that we attract as many people from as many diverse and different backgrounds as we possibly can. Yeah, that's where I stand on that, I guess. <laughs> for just a couple of hours, Jasmine has the house to herself. Outside, the weekly recycling lorry is making its slow way down the street. She was supposed to put the recycling out, but she forgot. Well, never mind, the world won't end. The lorry makes such a horrible noise. Jasmine puts on Revolution Girl style now by Bikini Kill. Not as loud as she'd like, but... Uh, do you think the theatre needs to decide if it's like an active political maker or just a commentator? Um, no, I don't think it needs to decide. I think anybody, anybody should be able to make whatever they feel they want to make. Um, I think it's interesting that at the moment, um, how much directly political theatre is around which is amazing and inspiring but I don't think it needs to come down on either side um no <laughs> would be the short answer uh yeah I mean there's so many amazingly talented people out there making extraordinary stuff like for example the Donmar doing the votes that's that's an extraordinary thing to do and it's got a and it uses a form that we haven't seen before. Emma and I were talking about what we wanted to do for the election. Obviously, the change of government or potential change of government is massive, massive for us and for everybody else in the country. So we approached Chris and sort of said, we want to do something that looks at the new generation of voters, like how and why people might vote or not vote. My personal belief is that everybody should vote, but that's not necessarily the, the, how the entire theatre company feels. So we wanted to make a piece that would really look at how the personal and the political intersect. And Chris has written this absolutely beautiful piece for us. And we wanted it to be something that, even if you just download it, would be eminently readable, but is also a starting point for other forms. So maybe you want to make a whole play of it, or maybe you just want to read them out loud, or maybe you want to just talk about some of the things, the questions that he raises in it. So he um, started to write that for us at the beginning of the year, and I have to say we're absolutely 
like delighted with it. Um, I read it again this morning, just on the way here, and was again struck by just how beautifully it is written. And he is an extraordinary theatre maker and writer, so we're delighted that he did that for us. Jasmine's naked, alone in her room, in front of the mirror. Her hair's a mess, but it sort of works anyway. Her eyebrows need definite love and attention. Her nose is too big, but you can't worry about everything at once. And this precious time alone is not for moping in. Two years ago, we worked with Rachel Chafkin from the team, and she wrote us a recipe, which was a, a sort of bunch of instructions, really, or starting points that people could make their own piece of theatre from. We very much wanted, with Chris, that this to be a starting point to empower other people. It's just easier to, to take a piece that already exists and start from it. It's, it's an easier way in, and it, and it means that you can feel connected to a lot of people doing the same thing, so it can be quite inspiring. Three things in the post this morning. A sign from New York called Panic Attack, which has an awesome picture of Debbie Harry on the front. And a postcard from a boy she used to know in sixth form, who is doing massive cliché gap year world travels blah, greetings from Chile. And a white envelope containing ballot papers in the name of James Edward Morley. Who the fuck is James Edward Morley? says Jasmine out loud to her own reflection. And she laughs, and puts her hand over her cock. Fuck, I need to practice my laugh, she thinks. And she's so tired just for a moment. There's so much work to do. And that was Hannah Price from Theatre Uncut, with Victoria Harrison reading extracts from their new show, Apathy, written by Chris Good. If you're a young person looking for training... I was lacing the cover on my trailer. The company hadn't provided a ladder. I fell and badly injured my hip. If you're looking for a good job... One morning at work, Barbara Collier's chair collapsed, leaving her with painful injuries to her back and knee. If you want to buy your own home. The kitchen was busy. And I slipped on some food that hadn't been cleared up. I bashed my knee very badly. If you're raising a family and need help with childcare. If you're worried about claiming after an accident. If you fall ill and need to rely on our National Health Service. If you've had an accident in the last three years. If you're reaching retirement and want security. Find out free if you can make a no-win, no-fee claim. We are there for you, offering security at every stage of life. Call the National Accident Helpline now on 0800 556 557. Now let's head back to the discussion. We're talking about Fight Night by Antoine Hout at the Unicorn Theatre, where everything was all about voting. Tim, can you tell us about our next show, Fight Night? Talk to us through what it's about and have you watched any of the election debates at all? Yes and no. Yes, I can tell you what the show's about. No, I haven't watched any of the election debates. The show is by Belgian theatre group called Entrer and Goad. I don't know how you say it. I'm speak Flemish. I think. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's looking at the way we approach voting. Every member of the audience is giving a vote, given a voting pad at the beginning, and there are five candidates on stage and an MC, and successively through the show, you vote candidates off the stage uh, by responding to a series of questions, and the candidates can try and win your favour. Uh, Jesse, how, how visible were the, the processes of, around voting? How visible did you think these were made throughout the show? I thought that the um, general feeling that I got was that voting systems are really bad. So, yeah, I mean, if it was me, I, I wouldn't really want to vote, because I'd be like, oh, well... Going to get some idiot running my country, but um, I mean, there's a really weird system here in the UK, anyway. Yeah, um, I'm from I'm from Germany, we have a, a 
different systems. So I'm, I'm not quite. Sure. I've tried to understand the British system, and it's, it doesn't seem. It's very basically fun. like it was like you've got to vote. It's really important, and then you go and vote, and it's like your vote didn't count. Although it is important. The the thing that threw out really clearly for me was that so towards the end, there's one candidate who's persuading people to not vote, give away their voting tablets, and go and sit on the stage. The six or so people who did that no longer had a say. Mm. So they got a KO. Uh, the, yeah, a KO sticker. After the next round of voting, someone was still elected. I think it is incredibly important that you buy into the system you have and you use the right that you have within that system. Campaign for change, and we almost got there with PR a few years ago. Campaign for change, but still exercise the right you have because otherwise. The point. I totally the agree with that politically. I don't think the show did a very good job of bringing that out for me. I was one of the people in the performance that I saw that went down onto the stage giving up my vote. And it wasn't six of us, there were 20 of us, I think. Wow. Um, and that for me really brought it. Getting on the stage gave me the boost at the end that I kind of needed after a fairly sort of, I, I felt a very lacklustre production. I felt like it was it was lacking in charisma. I didn't really care about any of the candidates. They were all kind of flawed in this really obvious cartoon way and, and getting up on stage at the end, justifying to myself, being a person that would normally reject and the idea of getting really a vote and completely agree with what you were just saying about uh, you know working on the system and so on. But I felt that in that particular situation, it was so engineered that everyone was terrible and now there was only one candidate left. Now in that extremist of a situation, I felt like then is the time to say, now the whole system is fucked. We have to move on and we have to do something else at that point. There were a few of us who were like, we're going to lie down on the stage. They were like, now it's time for you to leave. And we were like, no, fuck the system. This isn't democracy anymore. That's so really actually that became powerful and interesting theatre, but it wasn't really theatre anymore because it was we were doing it ourselves. What is it that causes that spark of revolution? Yeah. Because we were, what was it, a Sunday matinee? Yeah. And one of the performers <laughs> even commented on it. I was like, oh, the very well-behaved Sunday matinee. Yeah. Audience. There was no attempt to break what the show could be. Mm. But it does throw, up, does throw up the interesting difference between whether you treat it as a show, as a piece of theatre, or whether you treat it as reality, you know, get yourself into the mindset that this is you actually voting in political election or whatever. I really wanted people to buy into the one who was saying, let's just, as an experiment, all vote for the same thing. You know, we know we're in a theatre, we know we're just part of this experiment. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone just agreed for one small moment? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then thinking, you know... Oh, you were one of those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Interesting. You mentioned just now that all the characters were flawed in a really obvious way. And I actually found that quite interesting because that made me... I think it had that effect that I was constantly like, oh, no, I can't vote for this person because yeah. they're racist or they because they, they're spiritual or whatever yeah. whatever the reason might be. So and maybe, in a way, we have to... We, you're, you're, we're supposed to think to ourselves, oh, OK, like, I've got to vote for the least worst candidate. But what an awful, cynical message for, for youth theatre, yes. for youth production to be giving to young uh, people. And given that it is kind of... It's political theatre, so it's a bit didactic, it's, it's a bit about the messages we should be giving. I did. I felt like it was really hopeless. It was. It was more like sort of a black mirror, horrible distortion of but what political theatre for young people them. should be. I think it's confronting them with some sort of kind of really horrible reality. Soon they'll be able to vote, if not in this one, the next one. And this is the reality. This is what you're going to be faced with. You have these flawed people. But okay, let me bring up another issue. Was it even a good metaphor for 
politics. Like what it felt like a much better metaphor to me was reality TV voting, which obviously young people are going to be more familiar with that in many cases. Maybe the theatrical production team were more familiar with it because I didn't feel like there were any of the kind of tropes or interesting elements of real politics that were reflected there. Rather, we had the, the three male characters all played off their sexuality really early, like, vote for me, the girls will like me, that's why they'll vote for me. It was really a kind of a pastiche and a metaphor for reality TV voting, not for political vote. I think what you said about reality TV is interesting, actually, because one of the things I found interesting straight away was how they brought them out and they said vote and you didn't know anything about them and I could feel myself going... Oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for her because I'm like a, you know, strident feminist. I'm never going to vote for a guy. And, you know, and I thought, well, I actually felt uncomfortable. I was like, what am I going to base my vote on? And then, throughout the play, there were no policies. And, I mean, that maybe that was deliberate because it was more about the voting. But, in a way, that kind of made it pointless because you would vote for somebody based on what they stood for and you never found out what anyone was kind of supposed to stand for. But that's depressing, isn't it, you know? But I found myself constructing the policies I thought these people were standing for. Did that not happen to you? Well, you thought, okay, so this person clearly thinks this, so I'm sure they're kind of... They go in this direction. Or you sort of adduce things, you conflate things. So, for example, when they came on, they were entirely... They had a black robe on, and you were asked to vote immediately. I was voting on their shoes. I was voting (laughs) on what shoes they were Great choice, yeah. Um, And you kind of equate things like, he's wearing leather shoes with, he's a certain type of person. But also, a lot of the things we knew about them, that they were sexist or racist or whatever, it was all very negative, and it made me think about how we have that a lot now, where we kind of just want to catch people out and be like they said this really shit thing and they tweeted it and they did this and they can fuck off because the choices don't become the, one, become the ones that you expect yeah I was really interested in how my feelings changed all the way through because at one point I found myself voting for the guy the short blonde guy because I was like well everyone's saying he's doing really well so I just yeah. need to do it and when there are fewer candidates it doesn't become about the individuality of that candidate it becomes about who they are compared to the other one so if you it's the lesser of two evils if you'd rather have that one because he's not the other one or if you'd rather have the woman because she's the woman and not the man in a man versus woman then you vote for her. But I didn't get much of a sense of a real personality because some of those about turns were so, they were so unsignposted and arbitrary and, you know, someone who you thought was quite likeable would suddenly turn around and, and say, that because I'm gay. Aha, not really, I'm not. I'm joking. Of course I'm not gay. And you're like, okay, so they're a bit weird and a bit homophobic possibly and I don't I don't really know where that came from so I, I felt distanced from it in that way but also I think the technology is an interesting question because in a way the vote box that's kind of old technology it's interesting in a theatre in one sense but where was the Twitter hashtag where was the internet kind of connectivity of this show that's supposed to be for young people about politics now certainly we're used to that idea of an angry debate and we had our little vote box where we could press a button but we couldn't we, we couldn't get challenge. involved we couldn't ask questions because they had no policies yeah. and there was no there was no solicitation of that that's the fundamental flaw of tick box voting you know one of the prime examples of that was they listed four very rude words which they took a lot of joy in repeating and you had to vote for your least favourite word when you're voting for your least favourite word 
you can't get across by pressing one button that you're not condoning the others. Did you find that interesting, the question when they asked, are you suspicious of yes. the other people in the room? Because I straight away was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was probably the most interesting question. Do yeah. you trust the majority? Yeah. And then you get a majority saying they don't. didn't trust yes. the majority. Yeah, so it was like 50 So something. do you trust that majority that's just said they don't trust that's right, very meta question. <laughs> I think for a young person going through this and feeling like, oh, I'm oh. pressing this button and, and it changes something, because the audience where we were was quite small, mm. I think that experience in itself, like the immediacy of I'm pressing a button and I'm influencing something, that can actually just really make you aware of the power you have. So I think that's a, that's a great thing to I come love away that with. idea, but I didn't get that from this show. I think it fell short of a possible ideal that it could have gone to. I get that probably there is some flexibility in the script, but we saw different shows and very clearly the overall pattern of it is the same and the same three arguments are presented at the end, whichever people are elected. And I think that that, that was a problem with the, the production, of, with the performance itself, was that it lacked spontaneity. I think for that format, what would have been really interesting is if actually it was sort of pretty much improvised every night and that it genuinely did mean that it could go down lots of different routes, whereas this felt like we were on rails and all we could do was, was flicker yeah. a signal you could tell it, You could tell it wasn't improvised. I could tell oh, very as, much. as well. Yeah. Um, so not enough to, to stop apathy. Um, I, that's what I kind of gather from, from you guys. Um, <laughs> We're all still apathetic. <laughs> no, 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 I, I actually thought it was the opposite. I thought it was a really, for me, it was a, a very good example of the direct impact that a vote can have, even though it can often seem like it doesn't. Tim Banner spoke to Paul Cree and Conrad Murray about zero-hour contracts and their show No Milk for the Foxes at Camden People's Theatre. It's a piece of theatre, but it also um, has like rapping and emceeing in it uh, as like a theatrical device, plus beatboxing. There is one question, one big question above all. There are 700,000 people on zero-hour contracts. Could you live on one? No, I, look, some, as I said, Could some people... Could well, uh, you live on one? I want to create a country where more people have a zero-hours contract. I've heard a few times coming from politicians referring to the lack of people that are saving money. How are they supposed to do that if, you know, one week you might be working a normal standard 35 hours or whatever, and the next week you're not? It seems like that's what's exploiting, like, working people right now and, like, dividing workers, you know what I mean? Instead of bringing everyone together. We're all fighting each other for the work. And it's like, you know, divide and conquer tactic and there's no kind of unity amongst the workers. Everyone's frustrated. It's just a, a race to the fucking bottom, you know what I mean? Some people choose a zero-hours contract. If you're a student, for instance, and you want to do some part-time work, a zero-hours contract can work for you. It's also something that... Probably a few different ways or in various forms you've both had experience in. I've had loads of jobs in those sort of working conditions. So something that, that we spoke about and, and related to. Is it all, yes. It's all coming from um, an authentic place. It's just from knowing like people who have done and also been on zero hours contract and not even been told you're not working anymore, you've just got no hours anymore. So it's through that, it's through experiencing it. But then just for actually just living now, alone, knowing those people, not in a way of like asking someone how do you feel. I worked in an office for quite a few years 
for a small finance company, so people that owed money. So I worked there up until 2010, so I was there. Peak times, and then when the crash kicked in, we started getting emails on a pretty regular basis. Oh, you know, you're not hitting targets and stuff like that. And they were even as explicit as this. It's like, you know, there are hundreds of people that want your jobs that will do it for less money. These kind of threats. And it was almost as if, you know, they wanted to lay everyone off, knowing that they could bring a whole load of new staff in that would do it for less dough. It was horrible. Ian Duncan Smith. By the way, Zero Hour Contract is badly named. I don't know who ever came up with that idea. It should be named the Flexible Hours Contract. Bullshit, people are going to still call it Zero Hour anyway. Because it's Zero Hours, Zero Rice. But it's zero some game. And you're just running to the end. Like I said, there's no game. I'm fucking hamster one. One of the, the characters in the show, I guess the first sort of story part of the show is that they, they haven't been paid. You know, they work weekly, put timesheets in, and for whatever reason, the timesheets haven't been processed. And uh, one of the characters is really angry, and the other one, in a way, just accepts it. He's like, he's saying, well, this kind of thing, this is how it is now. This is what happens. It's almost as if he's being conditioned. But he also yeah. believes the shit as well. He thinks if he works really hard, he's going to get yeah. something out of it. If you work hard, you put in, you save, you can afford that home of your own. If you've worked hard, if you've saved, if you've done the right thing, you should have that dignity and security in your old age. I don't, you know, definitely not agree with, you know, they're all, they're all liars, they're all cheats, they're all... I don't believe that at all, because I'm not a liar and cheat, they're just, like, doing their job. But, and I don't, you know, I think the one people that I disagree with aren't liars and cheats. They truly believe that that creates a better society for them. And maybe for all, but it doesn't. I think they think they're doing good whilst fucking everything up. I remember when they had the, the debates over Margaret Thatcher's funeral, Conrad sent me a link uh, of, of Dennis Skinner, the old Labour guy, and he gave this 25 minute long, something like that anyway, speech. Mr Dennis Skinner. Yeah. 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 We're here talking about the thing that we sometimes suggest has gone away. Class. That's what it is. It's about class, and it's about the fact that people out there have to live their lives in a different way, and there's one rule for those at the top, and there's another for those at the bottom. It's never changed, I wish it had, but it hasn't. And it is something to be said for hearing someone who speaks in a certain dialect and a certain accent. Like, I'm not from, I think he was from Yorkshire, I'm not sure. I know he was a, like a coal miner type. And hearing someone who still speaks in their accent and speaks in their dialect in Parliament, it, it made me tune in on a, on, a, on a much higher level, you know? We should remember where we come from. And I remember those people. I remember my own family. Nine kids hadn't got to eight bits to rub together. It's still embedded in my soul. And that's why I speak as I do. And I don't want to change, and never will. The fact that it seems a, a really homogenised in the way people dress and the way people speak, I think it, it's made me switch off in the past. I think, well, why, why isn't there more people like him in there? And maybe, maybe more people would engage. I don't know. Russell Brand's attracting a lot of attention. He gets, he gets he's getting over like a million views. And his, mess, his message is convoluted, because he is a politician now. He just isn't a member of parliament. But he is a politician, politicking, talking about politics, people listening to him. So by saying don't go into that system, you're now buying into his. 
and he was a movie star. He wasn't coming out in interviews and saying, I just want to say vote Labour or don't vote for no one when he's in a total wane. Now he reinvents himself. I think, why couldn't he have done that at the height of his fame? What, as you know, I'm interested in is the political realm and the true power that is beyond the purchase of conventional democracy. Yeah, no, I don't vote. Mate, if we don't vote, we're going on the status quo. If we don't vote, then we haven't got a say. Parliament was our representative. Before that, it was just the monarchy. That's there for us. Doesn't matter how they dress and how they talk. That's all we've got. That's all we've got. Russell Brand isn't going to create a new system. I yeah. think what, what it does do, though, I think is, is draw attention to certain things and use that, like TTIP, for instance. You know, he's spoken a lot about that. Maybe because he does, he does get so many views on his channel that at least some people are now switched on to these things that are being pushed behind back doors in Parliament. For me, that's what he's good for. There could be some good that comes with that. I don't know how much good comes out of bad. You know what I mean? I just, I just, I just, it's not us against them. We are them. We need to be there and having a say. If we pull away, down here, we've got no union. They, they've crushed it. There's no unions. There's zero house contracts. So when we pull away, what can we do? There's no unified thing. We're just watching his movies. It's you, it's you, it's you. No, it's not me. Russell Brand can say that because it's all about him. You're a millionaire, but you feel like you're in control. You've got the power. Everyone listens to you. You look like fucking Jesus in your fucking posters. There's something really perverse about the whole thing. It's really weird. We should respect our elders and treat them with dignity, and that is exactly what this government has done. My sister was a carer for three years, and just 65 hours a week. 65 hours a week, she made £180 a week, sometimes 120, 65 hours. It's fucking ridiculous to do one of the most important jobs. And that's what everyone's saying, but it is. We're all going to get fucking old in the care. Cleaning old people's asses, like you wipe up the sick, you're feeding them, you're their friend. We all should want that. What kind of society should do that to the old? Should, like, that, that just fucking blows my mind. That the, the carers aren't part of the NHS for a start. And it's private, fucking privatised. So they can like do it for zero hours contracts for the lowest amount of money. These are the fucking one of the most important jobs in the country. And it goes everyone there because we're all young and sexy right now. Fuck that. We're all old and decrepit now. Because that is going to come. That will come. I, I find that's really sad. And zero hours contracts adds to that. They're on zero hours contracts. Also, we got no pensions. Also, how the fuck can we afford? How are we going to afford this help, this care when we're old? There's a lot of slander against carers. Like they do this and they do that and that. It's like, look, mostly they do good, and that's that's because you're fucking on the lowest pay zero hours contracts, and you're going to get bad people if you do that. Like the majority are amazing. They're doing fucking hard jobs that I couldn't do. We should applaud them every day. I say something simple. Zero hours contracts. Zero hours contracts. Zero hours contracts. Zero hours contracts. Zero hours contract. 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 Let's now return to our roundtable discussion at the BAC, where Chris's other piece, Stand, was still fresh on everyone's mind. Jesse, you had strong feelings about Stand. Can you give us an idea of what the, how the show worked and what it was about? Yeah, so Stand is six actors saying verbatim pieces from activists. And, yeah, basically they, they sit there and they tell us what these people said. That's the uh, synopsis that I'm going to give you now. Very neutral synopsis I'm giving you. No, uh, okay, not neutral. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, you you so don't... Like, you know, you had strong opinions when yeah. we walked out. Well, I really wanted to like it because I thought this is the sort of thing I like. And I just really, really didn't like it. 
Um, and I'm interested to hear what you guys have got to say because perhaps I'm being cynical. I just thought, what, what, what was Chris Good thinking? Why did Chris Good get up and say, I'm going to make this stand thing where I'm going to get six middle class people? And it's not because they're middle class. There was aspects of being just like supercilious and smug. You know, why are people apathetic? I hate it when people talk about people just watching The X Factor because I'm just like, you can't, you can't just hate people for watching The X Factor. You need to understand where they're coming from as human beings and why they're doing that. There was no, there were, it could have gone some interesting places. I love the bit where she said, you're really excited and then you get arrested and then it's awful. I wanted to explore that more. But I mean, for somebody to say, oh, I flew in, oh, to a climate camp and I felt a bit bad because I flew in. I thought, what do you do? Like, what's your job? You just flew in. It felt very privileged. And there was no acknowledgement of the fact that to be an activist full-time or part-time or whatever is actually quite a privilege because lots of people can't afford to do that. But the show is very explicitly not about full-time activists. It's about ordinary people taking a stand. All the characters, this sounds horrible, not to their denigration, were ordinary. I don't think they were meant to be portrayed as full-time activists. I think that's where, actually, that, that was the bit that made it successful, is what you kind of, the middle-class bit, that they're all from Oxford. Yeah, no, they're, they're all from Oxfordshire, but I yeah. don't I think by any stretch they're all middle-class. I think, okay, I, I, I take your point, and um, I, think, I think we didn't learn enough about who these people were. I think I felt that something that I thought would be very personal was actually not. We didn't really learn about these people or their lives or their family or what they did. We didn't learn about people that they'd actually spoken to. It was more just, you know, I went to a protest and I did this and I did that. That guy who was talking about this shell fit, BP thing. If I wanted to hear a guy, like, berating me about what happened at the student union AGM, like, I'd go back to uni and hang out with some, like... 19 year olds you know I although I didn't like some of the monologues there are a couple that really hit me so personally I didn't like that one yeah there was a kind of fairly young guy talking about what was it called disruptive Shakespeare or something they uh, put on theatrical acts to oppose sponsorship by companies like BP in theatre um, the programme talks about it being the big themes which they certainly are it doesn't it doesn't sort of claim that they're the biggest players in their fields but it does say that they're ordinary people changing the world and I think in that it does fail but where it does succeed is that it shows a sort of reality of what any kind of voluntary work is often like I work in the third sector I've organised protests that have thousands of people come to them and there's always rough edges around the work that is done there's lots of strangeness and craziness and, and they are very ordinary people with ordinary uh, lives I didn't think they were quite as sort of monotone as has been suggested I think that you know there were different uh, ages different backgrounds like there were lots of filling in the gaps we couldn't get into everyone's absolute backstory you had to kind of fill in some personal gaps for people but I quite like that we saw just sort of down-to-earth realities of that yes most of the people at a given protest may not really know the full details behind it they got sucked into it that he, he did it because he, he fancied the girl at the union that ran the campaigns that's kind of interesting to know how people um, get involved I think the only sort of downside I would say then is that it's it's maybe only kind of informative to someone that is completely outside of that someone that's never volunteered in a charity shop or gone door to door for any purpose or stood in any demonstration 
then they might learn like oh right okay these people I thought were a bit crazy and gave up their time to go and do this this stuff they're actually normal people like, like me and you and actually I think the vast majority of people probably know that kind of thing I, maybe I'm just like a hopeless idealist but no. I just not that I thought that everything worked completely but I just was really moved by a lot of it so I wonder why you you say oh they're not changing the world but one of those things that clearly came across for me little by little we can there was only one monologue that really properly moved me which was um, the mother of the adopted child where she was telling her daughter's story and it may have been to do with the acting but she came across as completely meek completely wanting to give praise to someone who didn't want to take praise for themselves and like one of the most genuine emotions in it which was pride for her daughter I agree with you I do think and I think that that wasn't so obvious that was a different way of looking at somebody who has actually done something to change change somebody's life and do something really good I, one thing I wanted to ask, just generally, because all the play, ob- obviously, were um, just before a general election, how balanced does political theatre have to be, really? This is one of those things that was discussed recently in the press. They're all too left-wing uh, to actually change and offer a balanced view of the world. And to make, what are your guys? How much balance do we need in political theatre? I don't think we need any. I think that if you feel something and you're passionate and you have a message, then why do you need why do you need sort of a countering voice? Because to me, what would be the countering voice in stand? Don't fucking do anything. Just like look yeah, out but for stand is, is a fairly politically neutral piece in terms of party politics. No, no, no but I mean like Lampedusa, for example. What what use would a right wing voice be? I don't personally. I don't see why these things need to be watered down because there must be a reason why certainly not as strongly as Katie Hopkins but people are against giving aid to drowning migrants there must be reasons why and everyone in that Soho theatre audience probably agreed that giving help to drowning migrants was was right and was a moral duty but there must be it I think the onus needs to be on the right wing playwright to make that case I think it's it, we, no one can sort of say theatre needs to be more balanced and more and have more right wing on or something I think I personally I think there's just something sort of fundamentally at odds with a sort of more right wing and or more conservative view in the theatre I think it's like right wing comedians it's just very difficult to make jokes or make good drama or make good points from a right wing perspective because the arguments look crap and you sound heartless and nasty like, so I think they're, they're just at odds and the onus would be on the, the right wing playwright to, to make that case and it, it, they try occasionally and it doesn't usually go very far and so I don't think we can, you can enforce balance from the outside I also want to have my views challenged because the environment in which I live is full of people confirming views that I already have I think it is necessary to be challenged on those views. But I think your views can be challenged without necessarily just being given a polar opposite view. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not saying that you know I want like a quota of hardcore right wing plays. I do want to see plays that can't be accused of breaching to the choir. But be careful what you wish for because you don't want David Hare to write a play. <laughs> I mean, Let's that, be honest. I've done a David Hare, but I've done a David Hare. What? What? Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our contributors, Bob Churchill, Jesse Thompson, Hannah Price, 
Victoria Harrison, Paul Cree and Conrad Murray. And thank you for listening. More same time next month. Until then, goodbye. Am I tough enough? H- tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.